This yes. is hell. All right, then. Live from the United States, where property has more rights than people, this is hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Alex, how was your weekend? Uh, it's not bad. Uh, one thing I think maybe is a plus of your vision problems yeah. is uh, you can't tell that I am dressed suspiciously like a brown shirt today. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Uh, dark brown pants, light brown shirt. Didn't notice it until I walked out of the car. <laughs> <laughs> Are you carrying also a bike messenger bag as well? Is that, is that a Nazi thing? Well, the strap across the front gives a little bit of an illusion towards it. I My weekend was, Alex, I have no idea. I know you only have one kid, and my niece and her husband have two kids that are, uh, one's three and one's five. I have no idea how people put up with kids. I am so glad I was never a parent because I know I would have been the worst, most horrible parent of all time. So hats off to everybody who can actually do it. And if you think you're doing it well, I don't know if you are or not, but just it's wow. a ni- it's a nightmare. Don't do it. Oh my god. And I, I take that I'm I'm a C plus parent. Oh. It's a nightmare. Can't can't imagine trying harder. When my dad told me never make the mistake of having kids when I was like 15 years old, and telling that to your son is probably not a great thing to say, but man, that advice has really hit home this pack past weekend and this week on hell. Because this is hell, we start this week by talking meth. When we go on a guided tour of the county in the United States with the most home meth labs, when we speak with professor of anthropology and media studies, Jason Pine, who is author of The Alchemy of Meth, a decomposition. Why did this one county in Missouri end up being the home meth lab capital of the U.S.? Why did meth become so big so fast, and especially in the Rust Belt? What is the attraction to meth? What is its allure? And what does it say for our society when people who black power can finally feel empowered by cooking and selling meth. Introduced into a culture that already had a DIY sensibility baked in, what happened to rural deindustrialized America when it was hit by meth? We'll find out when we speak with Jason, who teaches at Purchase College, State University of New York. Jason also wrote the 2012 book, The Art of Making Do in Naples. And I'm only going to describe what that book is about because it sounds fascinating. His 2012 book examines how underemployed aspiring singers became entangled with the Camorra, the region's powerful and volatile organized crime networks. Jason's research focuses on people's everyday pursuits of personal sovereignty and alternative economies and alternative ecologies. I hear the fan really bad. Could you close your door and see if that helps? Maybe that would end the sound or something? For some reason, I'm hearing the fan incredibly loudly today. I have no idea why. Later on this week's hell, apparently there's some debate if we still live in an imperialist world economy or not. That is, do we still live in an era where developed economies dominate developing and underdeveloped economies, exploiting the poor South for the wealth of the rich North? We'll try to figure out why that old imperialist dynamic is not as dead as so many people think and hope it is when we speak with sociologist Intan Suwandi, author of Value Chains, The New Economic Imperialism, and we'll have the return of writer Curtis 
Chris White, whose new book, Living in a World That Can't Be Fixed, Reimagining Counterculture Today, dissects exactly what is counterculture and why we need it so badly today, and how so much of what is counterculture currently is not counterculture at all. You might remember Curtis being on our show way back in November 2015, so almost three years to the day of his last appearance. When Curtis was on back then, we discussed his book, We Robots, Staying Human in the Age of Big Data, and we don't know exactly who is going to be in our final hour of this week's This Is Hell. Of course, we do know there's going to be a moment of truth, but uh, keep going back to facebook.com slash thisishellradio, and when we announce our final guest this week, you will know. Brave enough to be live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover, This Is Hell, and Alex has this week's hangover cure. Uh, there's not going to be a moment of truth this week. Just found out from Jeff. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, this week's hangover cure is the classic brewer's cure, and the only cure of 15 suggested by brewers that we have yet to offer during our signature segment, this week's Hangover Cure, in an article at Vine Pear, Vine Pear? Vine Pear, headlined, we asked 15 brewers, what's your go-to hangover remedy? The, quote, Chris Gilmore, brewer at Lone Tree Brewing Company in Lone Tree, Colorado, saying succinctly, a four count of bourbon mixed with a mug of first runnings, the classic brewer's hangover cure. Let me try to translate. I believe a four count of bourbon is four shots. Oh, boy. Uh, first runnings are, according to Vine Pair, first runnings, the heavy wart extracted from the mash at the start of the runoff, mm, before any sparging has commenced. <laughs> sparging is the spraying of fresh hot brewing water onto a mash to rinse out residual sugars. It is essential to achieving desirable efficiency of sugar extraction. Somehow that makes this week's hangover cure, the classic brewer's cure, a four count of bourbon mixed with a mug of first runnings, the heavy wart extracted <laughs> before sparging. <laughs> oh, hey, uh, one other thing I just heard from uh, Kilter yeah. uh, on Twitter, and he said, any idea when your Christmas party might be? I have a crazy idea that might work if it's 17th through the, through the 21st of December. Otherwise, no worries, and make sure to celebrate Jezza becoming prime minister. Uh, it is going to be on 20, 23rd is the Saturday of that week, I believe. Is that correct? Uh, Wednesday is the 25th, so eight, it's on the 18th. It is on the 18th. Our holiday office party is on the 18th. So, yes, Kilter, it does fit into your schedule. And we hope to see everybody at our This Is Hell holiday office party this year, one week before Christmas Day on Wednesday, December 18th. We'll be hanging out here from 6 p.m. to who knows how long. And I have no idea what everything it's going to entail. But if you do not have an office and you have a... People, a group of people that you work with, you can have your office party during our office party here at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon. Again, that's Wednesday, December 18th, and we'll be telling you more about that as we go, as we move forward relentlessly into the future. This is not the media. This is hell. If you enjoy Autonomous Sensory Meridian Response, or ASMR, or getting the tingles, then I would suggest you listen to our interview with Bree Busk talking to us live from Santiago about the protests in Chile that we aired last week. You can find our conversation with Bree at thisishell.com as well as all of last Wednesday's show, including when Jeff Dorchin described his age, this age dominated by police and policing during his moment of truth. And I blamed my anti-capitalism on Jesus H. Christ. Now, I use the H because I don't want you to confuse the Jesus Christ I'm talking about with any other Jesus Christ. Besides, I think the New York Times style is really, really cool. But that talk with Bree, that thing gave me shivers, tingles, goosebumps, and I 
kept telling her throughout the conversation because it was the only way I could get the feeling to go away before I would ask another question. The only way I could get any kind of control over my voice. It was becoming really distracting, even making my voice quiver, which ain't good if you're trying to host an interview that people might actually hear. Bree's description of the general strike leading to neighbors coming out to the streets and engaging with each other, actually creating the building blocks of people's assemblies and direct democracy, it reminded me of the Portuguese Carnation Revolution, that short-lived success of peaceful, autonomous, direct democracy Soviets, that's with a small s, which we learned about from Raquel Cardera Varela, author of The People's History of the Portuguese uh, Revolution. You can find that talk with Raquel also at thisishell.com by searching on Varela, V-A-R-E-L-A. And you really should listen to that talk in light of our conversation with Bree because it provides some historical context to what could be the forerunner of what's happening on the ground in Chile right now. The people in the streets together and on a general strike, the community joined finally joined and told their stories of precarity under neoliberalism, and suddenly they realized what they thought was only their own personal experience was actually shared by others, and not just a few others, but everyone else, and they became united. These alternatives to the system that insist there is no alternative have had some success in the past, and to hear Bree reporting that it's happening right now in Chile, it set my ASMR off like the sharpened tip of a long fingernail slowly gliding along the round bottom of a wine glass. What Bree said that set the shivers off the most was toward the very end of the interview. I think I was actually in response to the question from Hell, maybe, but I'm not going to go back and listen because... I really don't want to get them tingles again. They really freak me out, and not in a good way. Near the end, Bree mentions one of the many chants she is hearing outside her window and in the streets. An old slogan from the days of Salvador Allende, the democratically elected president of Chile, who was overthrown in a coup supported by the CIA and Henry Kissinger, leading to the authoritarian regime of Augusto Pinochet, which led to the massacre of thousands who had supported who voted for Allende. That phrase, which I am sure you have all heard, is the people united will never be defeated. Although the people who were uniting under that chant and with Allende were actually defeated, defeated by brute force, which is the only way you can defeat the people. And it's how the people have been defeated for a long time. Whether it's the brute force of militarism and the police controlling through violence and oppression those who are getting screwed, or the brute force of late capitalism that has made public services out of the, I'm sorry, made public services out of the public's reach, has privatized everything for corporate profit, including our own personal privacy, has driven a wedge into the heart of equality and purposely fills us with futility and despair, so we truly believe there's nothing you can really do about it. All while militarizing the police in what amounts to a nation occupied by capitalism's armed guards. That's when Bree mentioned another phrase she saw spray-painted on a wall in the area of Santiago where the protests are taking place. Bree first gave us some background telling us how there had been a huge spike in suicides in Chile of light, including an elderly couple jumping in front of a train because they knew that under Chile's neoliberalism and the gutting of pensions, unions, and retirement payments, they would soon become a huge burden on their children. So they freaking jumped in front of a train, and they're not the only ones. Train stations have turned into sites of suicide in Chile. That's how bad it is. The graffiti that Bree saw and gave me the worst case of goosebumps, and it's doing it again right now, was, it's not depression, it's capitalism. 
as if someone who was suffering from loneliness and the unhappiness of neoliberalism was trying to explain to a professional or a loved one what is making them so sad. It's not depression, it's capitalism. That's a freaking suicide note. Not that we would know about those suicides or see the chilling graffiti back here in the States. As Bree told us, it's no surprise the uprising in Chile or the one in the UK or the other one in Haiti or the other one in Ecuador or Catalonia or Lebanon. It's no surprise none of them is being reported, but the Hong Kong protests are getting wall-to-wall coverage. After all, unlike the Hong Kong protests, the other protests all represent an analysis of capitalism and the establishment corporate news media, which does not want to criticize the system from which they profit and we suffer. There's no way they're giving airtime to anti-capitalism. Capitalism censors all debate, all discussion on capitalism, the dominant feature of our lives. So dominant is capitalism, it dominates any discussion of itself. It is unaccountable, yet, yet accounts for all our problems and irresponsible while erasing, making invisible all of its responsibility. It's not depression, it's capitalism. It's a plea for the mental health crisis that is happening globally. We've discussed so often on the show, including with Johan Hari, who I think was the first person on our show to actually list step by step how capitalism, how this neoliberal version of capitalism is depressing the hell out of all of us. When any men- mental health crisis is reported in the media, in other words, when it is brought up by a politician from one of the two major parties because the establishment media reports on establishment politics as the whole thing is an echo chamber for the establishment. When uh, mental health is mentioned by politicians and in the media, it's usually related to gun violence and mass shootings. In response to a massacre, those who want unlimited access to, I don't know, nuclear weapons, instead of considering gun control, always feign sympathy for the dead by trotting out mental health as a temporary distraction from the issue of guns. Shortly after, knowing full well that the media would never follow up because it never does, they do nothing to actually address mental health. There's nothing to see here. Just move along. The killers in those mass murders are clearly not happy people. Their writings and recordings don't reveal happy people, but those who are frighteningly upset with the world around them. And the world around them is, again, dominated more than anything by capitalism, where the murderer, whether the murderer realizes it or not. The mental health crisis we need to address isn't depression. It's capitalism. Capitalism is now purposely making us feel alone, emphasizing the individual so we will all be by ourselves, keeping everything to ourselves, making us feel shame for the pain we feel inflicted by capitalism and perverting us into people who never recognize our impact upon others, our contribution to, say, climate change and our complicity in the capitalism that is working us to death so someone can get an even bigger yacht. Capitalism is driving us to drink, which is the best thing that it has done for us, but even the best thing it does for us is killing us. Capitalism leads us to tears, crying at the position capitalism has put us in with the constant torture of debt and as it looms over us like strings dangling from some drooling puppeteer who laughs as we perform for them. Capitalism is the mental health crisis we need to address, and that's why it's never addressed. That's why we have mass killings. That's why we are alone. That's why when we match the news of the, or we watch the news of the next massacre, if we still have any humanity left in us after capitalism has tried to squeeze every last ounce out, we'll break down sobbing and maybe finally together knowing we are all suffering from the same depressing capitalism, will finally crack like people are in Chile, in the UK, in Ecuador, in Catalonia, in Haiti, in Lebanon. Maybe if 
people here in the States knew if their news wasn't censored by corporations who refuse to examine the effects of capitalism, maybe then they might just do something about it. Maybe not, but it sure would be great to find out. Because personally, I'd really like it if our show's title didn't accurately reflect the world we live in. I'd really rather the show was not called This Is Hell, and this week we'll try to determine... Uh, the if uh, we'll try to determine if economic world imperialism still exists when we speak with sociologist Intan Suwandi about her book Value Chains: The New Economic Imperialism. We'll talk counterculture, what it is, what it is not, and why it's so desperately needed right now when we have the return of Curtis White, who will tell us about his new book Living in a World That Can't Be Fixed: Reimagining Counterculture Today. We'll tell you a little bit later on in this week's show who our final guest will be this week. No moment of truth with. Jeff Dorchin, uh, but he will return next week after we speak with our first guest in a few minutes about meth. We'll have the rotten history. The very worst history has reminded us of this week. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Live from the United States, where property has more rights than people, this is hell. What happens when the American dream is haunted by the nightmare of meth? How do skilled, well-paid industrial workers who are weekend DIY tinkers in their garage become meth lab cooks? Here to take us on a guided tour of the world of meth, professor of anthropology and media studies at Purchase College, State University of New York, Jason Pine is author of The Alchemy of Meth, A Decomposition. Welcome to this is hell, Jason. Thank you, and thanks so much for this invitation. Jason also wrote the 2012 book, The Art of Making Do in Naples, which examines how underemployed aspiring singers become entangled with the Camorra, the region's powerful and volatile organized crime networks. I only mention that because that sounds like a fascinating book, Jason, and I'm very upset that I didn't know of that book when it came out because I would have definitely had you on our show. You write, while following the local news and chatting with students and people in town, one subject constantly circulated where you were teaching, and that was home meth labs. There was uh, talk of strange hoarding activity, peculiar shopping behaviors at Walmart and Walgreens, and suspicious gatherings and trash piles in the woods. There were reports of homes colonized by meth cooks while the owners were on vacation, bizarre property crimes, exploding trailers, and the horrid discovery of what had been in, hidden inside. Emaciated, toothless tweakers, stockpiled guns and ammunition, and abused children. There were many concerns among these rumors and truth that drew my attention, but what unsettled me most was the fact that so many people were making meth. Unnumbered cooks were transmuting ordinary household products into an elixir that radically transformed the way people lived, worked, and died. How obvious do you think it is to people working at Walmart that the people who are buying these household products are buying them to make meth? How obvious is the meth industry in counties like the pseudonym name that you give to this one, St. Jude's County. How obvious is the meth industry? Well, people get accustomed to the aesthetics, the appearance of people who are engaged in meth cooking, and they develop a sensibility where they can recognize the signs of what's going on. So it can be quite obvious. Oh. There, yeah, and there are many signs. 
Yeah. So um, why St. Jude? You write the stories I recount take place in a northeastern Missouri county I call St. Jude, a pseudonym, the county that annually ranked first in the state for meth lab bus. Why was this the number one place in Missouri? I said earlier in the United States, that was a mistake on my part. In Missouri, why St. Jude? Why do you think that ended up being the number one county in Missouri with the most meth lab bus? Well, the reasons are always multiple and complicated, and I can only conjecture based on what I've researched and read. Um, Initially, it was popular because of the landscape of poverty, of deindustrialization, although I prefer the term late industrialism because this is a place with an ongoing process of deindustrialization, whereas more metropolitan areas have replaced the industrial labor force with uh, other kinds of new economy forms of labor, like information, information-based forms of labor. But in places like these, the, this is an ongoing process where there are still factories or that are operative or or inoperative, but still producing or have still left behind them the ecological injury of their operations. And new jobs, new opportunities haven't come to replace them. So people are sort of left in the lurch. So this primes people for a DIY kind of sensibility. Already it exists in places like rural Missouri where people have a facility with uh, manual labor or fixing things or doing it yourself, homesteading, hunting, dressing your catch. And also a kind of familiarity with everyday household chemicals or at least what's more everyday in that region. So people don't really shy away from those kinds of um, those products. And then there are just many other reasons that concatenate with those to make this a possibility of a lot of meth production. One of, one of the things I was thinking about during, I mean, not only when I was reading your book, but also just during your response, is that uh, it seems like what meth did was it filled an economic or an industrial vacuum. It filled an employment vacuum. It filled a financial vacuum for the area that it was what had been created because of the, uh, at least the slowing down, the ending of industrialization. Do you think that something like meth was inevitable when that new economy did not come about? Do you think that an illegal economy was unavoidable? avoidable and inevitable when we change from industrialization to this more service uh, information industry economy? Yes, I wouldn't say inevitable, but I think the potential was very strong. I've seen this also in Naples. Informal economies spring up to fill a gap when there's a need. And I think what was more maybe not more, but equally important in this scene with meth cooking is that meth also provides a a physical embodied sense of hope, of energy, and a sense of being productive and useful and capable. 
which is also an important lack that people experience when they're un- underemployed or unemployed, marginalized. Yeah, that was one of the more fascinating things I found in your book is how meth would give people hope, meth would give people freedom. And I want to talk about that in a minute. But you write that St. Jude held the national record for meth lab bus for most of two decades, but these statistics do not necessarily justify the county's identity as the meth capital of the United States. The statistics gloss over the complexities of the political and economic geography that makes measuring meth lab incidents possible or desirable in any given county or state, rather than revealing the extraordinariness of one area of the United States. States. The statistics obscure the intricacies of narco-capitalism, how drugs are entangled with broader economic interests, and of narco-politics, how concerns about drugs are woven into forms of governance, particularly policing. And I don't think these are two terms that people come in contact with or consider very much. So narco-capitalism, how drugs are entangled with broader economic interests. I'm familiar with an economically depressed area that prior to marijuana becoming legalized had a very large number of marijuana home growers. I was told by many that the police simply didn't care about these home grow operations because they understood the financial desperation of their neighbors. Many believe that without the marijuana growing, the area would have a far worse economic crisis. Do you Did you see or witness any of that in Missouri, that the police seemed to be turning a blind eye, law enforcement seemed to be turning a blind eye because they understood the importance, the necessity of an illegal industry to the people they were trying to serve and protect? Uh, not exactly a blind eye, but um, I could say that in the county where I worked, there was particular interest in focusing mainly, sometimes mostly, on methamphetamine busts. Part of that was because there was encouragement uh, through the structure of policing and enforcement in general that they could get more funding Um if they achieved a certain number of busts as well, they received media attention and there was the possibility of a, a reality TV show. I'm trying to remember the name. I think it was Meth Busters. And there was a pilot that was launched. And I think maybe a, an episode, it never really got off the ground. But this also established some of the notoriety and, and the very real capacity of law enforcement to do their job, which I think they're doing very difficult work, but it's it's somewhat gratifying to have that recognized, albeit in a reality TV show, it's not the greatest way to do it. Um, but also sh- the methamphetamine problem was so diffused and so part of everyday life for residents all over the state that in a sense, I can imagine it would feel good to know that law enforcement is doing its job and publishing its results, putting all of the addresses of meth lab busts on their website, which is what they did in that county, can have a dual effect. It can make you feel like, yes, people are concerned about this problem, the people who have the capacity to do something about it. It could also highlight the problem and make you feel a lot of discomfort. It can also stigmatize the place. And of course, I could also be participating in that, which is why I'm also concerned about the problem of statistics and 
nomenclature like meth capital and Missouri in general as being particular in in terms of this phenomenon. And one thing I'm trying to do with this book and talking to you now is say this isn't a problem about Missouri and it isn't even a problem about meth. It's this is one way of talking about and noticing something that's much more widespread. And I think you're already onto it with your show in general, which is capitalism. So in an area with the most meth lab bus, how much does meth dominate society? Like you were saying in those kind of reality TV show ways that people are, or that uh, topics are discussed, it always sensationalizes it. And it makes me get this impression that there's these, right, like St. Jude County, Missouri, that it's completely run by meth heads, that everybody's a meth head, that it's the most dominant feature of society. So how much does meth dominate that society? How much do we exaggerate the ability for uh, meth to just completely dominate a county? Yeah, you're right. It is exaggerated. It's absolutely not true that it dominates any, any society. The everyday life consists of everything else that we're familiar with um, in that county in particular. People go to church, people engage in all sorts of charitable activities. Uh, there are courses and meetings at public libraries, festivals, um, just ordinary life that's uneventful. It is often colored by the fact that just about everyone knows somebody or is somehow connected to somebody who is involved in that in some way. And some, sometimes that could be a relative that is using or cooking or has been affected by a user, or even their next door neighbor is cooking meth. So I, I wouldn't say it dominates, but it definitely colors life. So much so that it can become kind of a, a normalized phenomenon, which is the danger. You uh, not only did you go to a whole bunch of uh, former meth homes, and we'll talk about that decomposition, you recomposing the scenes, which was really fascinating. You also point out that you participated in numerous activities, including open narcotics anonymous meetings when you're, during your studies of meth labs and meth users, paranormal society and photography club meetings at a local library, social events at a Lions Club at an AMVETS post, and for several months, Sunday service at a small Presbyterian church. So, is there a lot of meth use amongst those who are into the paranormal? Why go to a paranormal society uh, meeting while investigating meth? Or for that matter, why go to an AMVETS post or a church? How are those affected by meth? Well, those weren't pre-planned choices. Uh, when you do field work, you just take up any opportunity you can to be connected to people, to be connected and immersed in a life. So those are things that came up. Um, and that meetings, well, the, that was a, what, what did they call it, a meet, shoot, um, kind of competition where, a shooting competition where the prize was a hunk of meat from someone's catch. And guns do have a relationship to the next scene in Missouri, or at least they used to when I was there. So there is some 
some use to understanding gun culture, which was completely alien to me. So I had a lot to to learn about the fuller context in which meth is occurring in Missouri. I mean, it's it's a different world than I'm I'm familiar with. So ethnography or or the field work that produces an ethnography requires that you figure out what's going on going on and often a lot of that is not planned you also mentioned how most of the meth labs police identified during the years of my research were small scale yielding only enough meth for personal use so most meth labs are for personal use there how often would you come across a meth lab where it wasn't a user who was running it who was somebody who was in it just for the business of making money and not for providing a drug for themselves not very often at all. Um, I did speak to cooks who did have larger operations. They were in prison. But uh, the people out were, well, yeah, there was one person who was out. Well, was never caught, actually. But was no longer operating. Um, but I would say it's quite, it's quite the majority of busts that are small scale. I just find that really fascinating because so often in, uh, I've known many marijuana dealers and so often I've met them who do not ever touch their product. They're all there about their business. What does that reveal to you about meth? What does it tell you? What should that tell us about meth when most of the people who are creating it are actually using it themselves? Well, that's the the cause and effect. So people are cooking it for themselves. Then they may have a bit more left over that they can share with friends and family and or sell. But the reason that they're cooking is to use it, and that is an economic reason. It's not only the profits that you initially get from selling the little bit of meth that you have left over that is economic. But using meth is an economic practice in this context because initially people are able to go to work and work longer hours and withstand fatigue and boredom of whatever job they have, like roofing, cement work, trucking. And so meth, using meth was almost always the original reason to make it. So that's that's the difference between the marijuana grower who is not touching their product. Because they can actually get something out of their product by working harder. You write you can cook meth from ordinary domestic consumer products, energizer lithium batteries, and muriatic acid, commonly used to clean brick patios or unclogged drains, are available at big box stores like Home Depot, Lowe's, Walmart, which have long dominated local retail markets across the Midwest. In the same stores, you can find acetone or paint thinner and Coleman Camping Fuel, the brand that cooks uh, prefer uh, Pyrex, Teflon, paper. Salsa jars and plastic spoons—they've got everything. You're right, and ubiquitous across such much of Missouri and beyond. And in pharmacies, you can easily acquire instant cold packs or pseudoephedrine-based cold medicine. Meth's key ingredient, thanks to lobbyists and the employee of the pharmaceutical industry who fight proposed regulations. Considering the demand and necessity of all these household products for their household use. 
even without pharmaceutical industry lobbyists, could meth making, can meth making be stopped? I mean, all these are household products that we do regularly need and use, right? Well, uh, I mean, narcotics agents, specialists that I spoke to say that mm, small-scale meth production in Missouri and throughout the United States can be can be blocked to a large extent if pseudoephedrine-based cold medicine is made prescription only. So there, there is a direct correlation between pharmaceutical industry lobbyists and small-scale meth production. I'm emphasizing small-scale because the larger-scale super labs have other ways of getting the key ingredient. So the pharmaceutical industry then is responsible for the meth epidemic. Uh, do you think there's going to be any way that they will be held responsible for the meth epidemic? This is a state-by-state state some, on some levels, a county-by-county county operation of trying to get policy in place to regulate the circulation of pseudo-veteran-based cold medicine. Accountability, I don't know. I, that would be lovely. Yeah. I, I, I'm enjoying the, the opioid phenomena uh, in the sense of how the pharmaceutical company responsible for <laughs> the mass deaths related to it are now being held accountable. So maybe we might see the same thing with this. Um, so does the war on, what's the effect of the war on drugs, on meth lab creation, meth creation, meth use? To what extent do you think people are cooking meth because other maybe less harmful narcotics are illegal or like marijuana, for instance? Do you think legalizing marijuana or other drugs could lead to a drop in meth cooking and use? No, I don't think so. Um, because of the phenomenology of meth and what people are seeking when they use meth, they don't. Uh, marijuana is just a different experience. But methamphetamine is particularly alluring because it's an enhancement, a performance enhancement. One that also, when you when you use it, you know quite believe that you're intoxicated. You feel actually more alert, more capable, more alive in the ways that you feel that you're expected to be without realizing that you're ex feeling that expectation. So that you're falling into line to an imminent demand to be productive, to be useful, to be on it, to be courageous, social, and proactive and filled with endless energy and entrepreneurialism and ideas and exploratory behavior. So in a sense, meth is perfect. Other drugs are not as good for syncing up with a kind of everyday demand or sensibility that just seems right. 
you write about why people who make meth invoke the metaphor of cooking. Meth is a homey domestic product. And as you were talking about earlier, how the people in rural areas are very much into a DIY culture. So the cooking and the DIY all meet together. Cooks covet some recipes like precious secrets and share them only with privileged intimates, sometimes across multiple family generations. Secrecy is a form of intimacy. The metaphor is so powerful that although meth labs are found anywhere in a house, just as the precursors are found in any ordinary home, people always call meth manufacture cooking. A meth lab mixes fundamental human vitalities, domesticity, intimacy, commensality, and cultivation in a chemical cottage industry. Secrecy is a form of intimacy. Does that secrecy and intimacy then normalize meth making? Is that the process by which there's a normalization of meth making through secrecy and intimacy? Well, that's a good question. I, I, I would certainly say it does influence it. Um, there's, I've encountered a lot of cases of intergenerational cooking, sometimes three generations in a household recipes passed down. Um, there's a kind of complicity that can occur in neighborhoods. If your neighbor is cooking meth, you may not say anything because they'll pay you off with some meth or you don't want any trouble. You just want to mind your own business because you don't know what the repercussions would be. Law enforcement is massively underfunded and so they may not be able to police and protect you. So fear and secrecy, intimacy, yes, can make this a phenomenon that's there and it's submerged and I guess in that sense normalized. You go to a whole bunch of uh, meth lab homes, former meth lab homes. Uh, you talk about you talk about many different characters throughout your book. You tell these stories of many people. One of them is named Howard Lee. Again, that's a pseudonym. But you write that the address of Howard Lee's former trailer home and the one neighboring it are listed on the sheriff's website. They refer to two of the 336 meth lab incidents county law enforcement recorded in 2012. The motley materials I found in Howard Lee's home led me to still more wildly desperate objects. Many of the objects populate the 200 other former meth labs I explored in St. Jude, and really they populate any ordinary home in the United States. Was there anything you always found at every meth lab that didn't have to do with meth production, but you always found it there at every one of the meth labs you went to? Because I assume that you found the exact same production materials, and uh, I would assume, I could be wrong, but I assume you found the exact same uh, production materials. I was just curious if you found anything in almost every one of these meth lab homes that surprised you that had nothing to do with meth labs. Uh, I did see a lot of tools. Uh for fixing things. And this is something that I already noticed about people in this region is that they, they do have an interest in fixing things and a capacity to do so. So sometimes those tools were blended in with meth labs themselves. So one of the, the kind of shocking but 
uncanny things about meth labs is that they seem really ordinary. They're just a bit of a, a tweak to the configuration of how, or the constellation of elements in a home. They seem to be shuffled in new ways where it's not as easy to distinguish the garage from the living room, from the kitchen, and based upon the elements that are reconfigured in, in different places. And so tools showed up in, in odd places. And the name of your book is The Alchemy of Math, A Decomposition. So when you would enter a meth lab home, did you see, is that what you saw the most? You saw lives in decomposition? Yeah. By decomposition, I mean maybe a hundred different things. It's how ordinary products are actively decomposed in order to recompose them into this product, but how ordinary products are already decomposing and how ordinary homes, they don't need to be meth labs to become toxic. They are already. They contain all of the chemicals used to make meth already, and chemicals are not self-contained in their compositions as sold through chemical industries and the consumer end of that. But instead they're leaky and diffuse and off-gassing and so spaces are in decomposition already. And our sense of toxicity and purity as, as ordinary people who are not using meth, and it's just a hypothetical we, uh, is a fiction because we, there, there are no boundaries or clear boundaries to chemicals and, and how they leach and leak. But decomposition also is figurative in, in the sense that you look at a, a busted or combusted meth lab and you can see the tools and the frenetic, the, the evidence of frenetic activity, of tinkering, tweaking, of entrepreneurial activity, which to me indicates a kind of urge to succeed and to follow a kind of American dream that is now or for a long time has become a bad dream, something that people pursue and instead experience it as toxic. And then be just one more thing, beyond the home there's, or starting in the home and beyond it, there's the decomposition of, an, of ecology, of the geography, the, the literal ecological injury of late industrialism and this new cottage industry that is perfectly situated within this chemical industry uh, and its affordances, its offerings, what's available. 
you describe um, meth in this. I just found this really fascinating. You write, alchemy is the ancient art science of locating and harnessing the power of the philosopher's stone, an ordinary ubiquitous substance that promises to transmute base matter like lead into gold or to yield the elixir of life. This art science is now the work of late industrial alchemists. These new alchemists transmute banal industrial chemicals into a crystalline substance they can sell for a profit or into a pharmacon they can consume. Either way, they get more life. Now, a pharmacon, P-H-A-R-M-A-K-O-N, in philosophy and critical theory, is a composite of three meanings, remedy, poison, and scapegoat. How You've already talked about how meth is a remedy, how it is a performance-enhancing drug. We know how it can be a poison. How is it also a scapegoat, and how can it maintain being all three at the same time? Huh. I hadn't thought about this third meeting, meaning, but yes, uh, this, this is the thing that I hope most to achieve with this work, is that meth, Missouri, these specific places and things and people are not scapegoated and are not mm, highlighted as problems. Uh, sure, there are problems, but this is, for me, an indicator of a broader problem. So I'm in this book, and I think it's important that readers or listeners know this. And my my own mother is an, was an addict, maybe is. I also, for many years, was using legalized speed in the form of amphetamine, uh, amphetamine salts or Adderall because I was diagnosed with ADHD. And that turns out it was a, a misdiagnosis, um, but the remedy for it, the, the real diagnosis is sleep apnea. It's a long story, but it's the, the, the important bottom line for me is that um, just as there is the leakiness of chemical compositions that don't have boundaries, that you can't contain them. These kinds of stories, yes, they may look monstrous and extreme or exaggerated in one place, but they really are versions of stories elsewhere, my own story and a lot of other people. So you don't need to be using these drugs to be in the, the kind of world or sensibility where you're extracting more energy from yourself in order to feel productive and useful and scapegoating a drug or a certain kind of drug user is not going to be helpful in addressing what made that particular drug or drug user possible. One of the things that you mentioned seeing in some meth labs is a Bible. And I found that kind of odd to find a Bible, but maybe I shouldn't. It's in the Bible Belt in Missouri, so I shouldn't be that surprised. But what did that tell you about seeing Bibles when you found uh, them in former meth labs? What did that tell you about the people who you were trying to recompose? Well, yeah, religion is very important in the daily lives of people that I met. That's why I attended church. Um, 
a lot of meth cooks explained the circumstances that they lived through religious terms. It was an idiom available to them that made sense. So, for example, there was a cook who told me he believed that when he was distributing meth to his clients, his customers, he felt that he was a minister or a, a pastor with a ministry and that those were his parishioners. And he would dole out only enough to get them high. And if he saw them getting out, get out, getting out there too far, he would scale it back. He would help them out if they got into debt and had some problem. Others would describe explosions having escaped unscathed from an, an explosion, a sign from God that they're doing the right thing or that, you know, here's your chance to get out. This is, you need to stop doing this. Uh, the hallucinatory, the hallucinations people experienced from meth, from cooking meth during the cook would, people would explain in terms of religion as well. Many, many people talked about meth as sorcery. And one book that circulates a lot is called Meth Equals Sorcery, which is kind of a, a self-help recovery book where the author gathered up all instances in the Bible that uh, indicate sorcery and alchemy and builds an argument saying that uh, meth is actually the incarnation of the devil's work and that this needs to be addressed through you know, a kind of return to God. And religion plays a very concrete useful role because it, the churches are important institutions for filling a gap in recovery for many people. Um, people who are using, but also people who are affected by users and also narcotics anonymous meetings occur in churches, but it doesn't have to be such a formalized practice for it to be helpful. Meth comes up in maybe veiled terms in church, in, in the ways people talk, in sermons, on the marquees of churches. I found those fascinating, the, the kinds of messages that churches post weekly. Talk about, for example, hard times. Well, you know, don't turn to the devil or don't turn to expedient ways of turning your situation around. So, but in, in much more eloquent, eloquent terms that I'm, I'm using here. So re religion is very important for people there. So uh, you were mentioning that you took Adderall, which is an amphetamine, which is then like meth. Uh, we know all about the Oxycontin uh, plague and how that led to a greater increase in heroin use and then, unfortunately, uh, some of that heroin getting mixed up with fentanyl. Uh, does Do people who have ADHD and take drugs like Adderall, when they are re-diagnosed maybe or the prescription runs out, do they turn to drugs like meth? Is that as common as the Oxycontin heroin connection that we've heard so much about in the media? 
No, that I don't know. I, I, I couldn't say. I mean, that, that would be a big leap, I imagine. Um, okay. But, yeah. Yeah, because they don't. You don't think they translate as well as oxy and heroin do. The feeling is the same, uh, more or less, between uh, amphetamine and methamphetamine. There's a difference of intensity, and there's a ceiling on how high you can get with Adderall. Um, you just get a seizure if you take more and more. But uh, a lot of things would have to happen in order for someone to move on to meth. So, but really, it's not something I've I've studied or thought about. Okay, I was just curious about it because you brought it up. Uh, just brought up your Adderall use. That's why I've got one last question for you, Jason. We have been speaking with Professor of Anthropology and Media Studies at Purchase College, State University of New York, Jason Pine. He is author of The Alchemy of Meth: A Decomposition. Jason is an anthropologist and teaches courses in both the Anthropology and Media Studies programs. His research focuses on people's everyday pursuits of personal sovereignty and alternative economies and alternative ecologies. One last question for you, Jason, and we. Do this with all of our guests. Our final question is always the question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response at the very beginning of our conversation. You were, we were talking about how, and in your book, you talk about how deindustrialization, which you label as late industrialization instead of deindustrialization, its impact on the growth of meth use and meth labs in uh, Missouri. So, how do you view? globalization how do you view this era of our global economy differently when you consider meth as the price paid for globalization um, can you phrase this another way <laughs> uh, <laughs> let's see um, when we have changed, when we have a changing economy and we change from one economy to the other, we don't generally think about the people who might be left behind by that new economy. How do we view the new economy that we have here in the United States today differently when we realize that this transition to a new economy has created not only areas that have been plagued like the Rust Belt, uh, they've just been plagued by deindustrialization, but areas are being actually plagued by a new manufactured drug, drug out of household goods that is, you know, that's meth. So how do we view deindustrialization? How do we view our economy differently when we see as the outcome of this economy, not just the stock market being at 27,000, but the fact that we have meth? Okay. Well, that's a loaded question, but I like the load on it. <laughs> Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. Yeah, I think meth is a very strong indicator of a kind of sensibility that is toxic, uh, that dominates the way that we live in, in an embodied sense as subjects of late capitalism, that the need to feel productive on useful, but not only as, as a desire that somehow is not ours all the time, 
but also a feeling of insecurity and precarity where it becomes an actual literal material necessity. So meth comes at a great moment, a terrible moment, to help us do what we need to do. And meth is only one way to do that, and it's very extreme, but we do it in many other ways. So it's a, it's a self-transformation in which we take on the imperatives that are not always and maybe even not often ours, where we have to be and do like something else beyond ourselves instead of thinking about rest or weariness or fatigue, not as ways of, not as deficiencies, not as obstacles to be overcome, but rather as part of life, not the opposite of life. So this transformation of how we're feeling and living life as being on, being productive, being active in very narrow ways is a direct result of the kinds of precarity that we feel on a material level, but also on this kind of emotional, affective, embodied level. That was a great answer for the question from hell. Jason, I really appreciate you being on the show this week. This is a fascinating book, and uh, I look forward to having you back on when you might have a paperback version out and there's new addended information. We'd love to have you back on the show. Thank you so much for being on this week. Yeah, and thanks for the invite. All right, take care. Bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996, this is hell. Maybe that wasn't the right tagline to have right after a conversation on meth. Alex, what's this week's question from hell? This week's question. Oh, sorry. Uh, let that little Skype buzz come through. Damn there we it. go. Uh, this, question from hell, this week's question from hell is, what's going to be the Hillary 2020 campaign slogan? Yeah. What is going to be the Hillary 2020 campaign slogan? Uh, Hillary 2020 campaign slogan. I wrote down 2020 like in 2020 vision, and I'm just waiting. I've been waiting for somebody to say, uh, see clearly in 2020, vote Elizabeth Warren. I've been waiting for that, so I'm just, I assume that there's going to be some horrible pun like that in the very near future. Uh, what's going to be the prize? Want to decide later? Yeah, let's announce tomorrow. Okay. What's the Hillary 2020 campaign message? And when are you going to be posting the question from Alex? Can they... uh, this evening. Okay, so this evening, go over to our uh, Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, and post your response to this week's question from hell. What's the Hillary 2020 campaign slogan? And, you know, take your time right now. Think about it. And then you don't have to rush over there and be the first person to write it down. The first person who posts the first thing is not always the best thing or the best anything. Okay, it's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, rotten history. On November 4th, 1957, 62 years ago today, Monday, the Soviet satellite Sputnik 2 was launched into space carrying Laika, a stray dog found on the streets of Moscow. So the late 1950s, not a good time to be a stray dog in Moscow, as the Ruskies may 
shoot you into space. Russian rocket designers wanted to learn whether humans could survive in space, and they had been planning to send a dog into orbit and return it safely to Earth. But while the hardware for that project was in development, Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev demanded a propaganda spectacular to coincide with the 40th anniversary of the Russian Revolution. Under political pressure, the Soviet engineers were forced to throw Sputnik 2 together in a hurry without proper testing and launch it into space. There was no way to return the dog Laika to Earth, so the Soviet news agency TASS announced that after a week in orbit, she was humanely euthanized by an automatic device aboard the satellite. Well, at least after being inhumanely dragged from the streets of Moscow and shot into space, at least Laika died in peace. Only in 2002 was it revealed that Laika had actually died of stress and overheating within hours of being launched. She orbited the Earth dead for five months before burning up in the Earth's atmosphere. The Soviets, therefore, learned from Laika about sending humans into space. One, yes, you can shoot the homeless into space. And two, if they die in space, everybody will buy your story that they died humanely. On November 8th, 1520, 499 years ago this Friday, King Christian II of Denmark ordered the execution of more than 80 Swedish nobles, political leaders, and commoners in what would be known as the Stockholm Bloodbath, which begins play next year in the newly launched XFL. King Christian was trying to put down resistance by a faction of Swedes who wanted independence from a union of three Scandinavian kingdoms, the Trey Kroner, also including Norway, in which the Danes dominated. After inviting the rebellious Swedes to a conference, the Danish king had them arrested and locked up. His ally, the Archbishop of Uppsala, solemnly pronounced their opposition to the king to be an act of religious heresy and duly sentenced them to death. At high noon the following day, the Swedish prisoners were taken to the central square in Stockholm, where some were hanged and others had their heads chopped off. A regular potpourri of executions, because if there's one thing Scandinavians learned from their Viking ancestors, it's how to slaughter humans. But as an attempt to intimidate the Swedes, the Danish king's act failed miserably. It provoked a full-scale war in which he was driven out of Sweden for good. Knew the locals wouldn't take kindly to mass murder. A few years later, King Christian II would be overthrown in Denmark, and hostilities between that country and Sweden would persist for another 300 years. And I thought all Scandinavians were peace-loving, socialist, universal healthcare hippies. I thought they got all that killing out of their way and out of their system way back in King Ragnar's day. I really got to stop watching the History Channel because there's no real history in their programming. It's like MTV. There's no longer has any music, and CNN rarely carries any news, only analysis. And the analysis that's on CNN is as bad as the history on the History Channel. On November 9th, 1963, 56 years ago, Saturday, Japan was stunned by two major disasters occurring on the same day at the Mikey coal mine on the Japanese island of Kyushu. A conveyor train of 10 fully loaded mining carts was carrying coal up a steeply inclined mine shaft when a chain pulling them toward the surface snapped. And whenever you hear coal mentioned in Rotten History, you know things are going to go disastrously bad. The carts went crashing out of control, bouncing down the shaft at high speed until they slammed into some electrical equipment, creating a shower of sparks that triggered a massive coal dust explosion. A total of 458 miners were killed 
which is high even for rotten history standards. Some were killed by the blast itself, others by inhalation of poisonous carbon monoxide fumes. If only they had been mining clean coal. Another 500, or 839 miners suffered major injuries, including permanent brain damage. Meanwhile, in an unrelated accident in Yokohama, a derailed freight train and two passenger trains met in a three-way collision that killed 161 people and injured 120 others. So, on the same day, a coal mine explosion kills 458 miners. Another 161 were killed in a train accident, and only 13 13 days later, 13 days later, mind you, President Kennedy was assassinated. And get this, his limo he was riding in was rolling on Yokohama tires. And, and they found tiny pieces of coal on the grassy knoll, which means, clearly, 13 days before they killed JFK, Japanese coal miners and train conductors were engaging in a false flag operation. I, I think. I'm not sure. I'm, I'm not quite done with this conspiracy theory yet. I, I'm whiteboarding it as we speak. That's Rotten History, and this is Hell, live from Hangover Country. Hey, Alex, who's on tomorrow's two-hour live streaming, This Is Hell, beginning at 2 p.m. U.S. Central Time here at thisishell.com. Curtis White is back on the show to talk about his book, Living in a World That Can't Be Fixed. And then Inton Sawandi will be on to talk about her book, Value Chains, The New Economic Imperialism. That's uh, 2 to 4 p.m. Central. And then on the Wednesday show, live one-hour stream, no Jeffy, and we don't know who our guest is going to be quite yet. That's correct. Working on it. Working on it all day today. I hope to see you at our weekly Wednesday meet and greet. This is Hell Office Hours at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West of Anna, Chicago's Little India neighborhood. More than a meet and greet. This is Hell Office Hours. This is a think and drink. Join us any, each, and every Wednesday evening at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West of The bar downstairs from this here studio. Alex, again, what's the question from hell? Uh, the question from hell is, uh, what's going to be Hillary's, what's going to be Hillary 2020's campaign slogan? Leave your response at facebook.com slash thisishellradio when we post the question later on today. Alex, this week's uh, word of the week was from today's book, which was The Alchemy of Math, a decomposition by Jason Pine. Thank you, Jason, for being on our guest this week. And no, it wasn't the word pharmacon, though I really wanted it to be the word pharmacon, but the word pharmacon came up in a question, so I just didn't want to repeat the same word for the word of the week. The word of the week is a word that I read or maybe Alex reads in a book or any of the writing that we uh, come across on the show that we have never heard of before or don't know its meaning. This week's word of the week provided to you by Jason Pine in his book, The Alchemy of Meth, which we discussed earlier on this week's show, is commensality. Commensality, S-A-L-I-T-Y, C-O-M-M-E-N-S-A-L-I-T-Y. Any guesses, Alex? Any guesses? Uh, yeah, it's when you bring a big uh, salad potluck over to people and uh, you have it in commensality. <laughs> you know how close that is to the actual? Yeah, really? <laughs> commensality is the practice of eating together or a social group that eats together. It is a commensality. Yeah, I'm smart. <laughs> I mean, it's smart. You're really smart in a really dumb way, by the way. I just want to point that out. Uh, I wanted, uh, this week's Hangover Cure is the classic brewer's cure and the only cure of 15 suggested by brewers that we have yet to offer during our sig- signature segment, this week's Hangover Cure, and that is a four-count of bourbon mixed with a mug of first runnings, the heavy wort extracted before sparging. We're sparging. I'm going to go with sparging. Uh, thanks to Alex Jerry for producing this week's show. Thanks to Ronaldo Magaldi for Rotten History. Uh, I guess that's about it. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show. Alex Gary, there's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's show. 
That's by sitting down in the lotus position. Turn your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying the simple words, everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride.